Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. Uh, we're starting a new series today called Non-Trending. So the question is, why are we talking about stuff that isn't trending? Right? And it's because a lot of the frequently asked questions that we have about faith and life in the Bible aren't necessarily trending right now on Twitter, but they are nonetheless huge questions that we wrestle with on a regular basis and have conversations even around uh, sometimes with our friends, especially about faith. Over the next three weeks, we're going to zero in on uh, several of these, uh, th- one theme and several questions related to it that many of you actually asked us to deal with. So this is part of our response to the feedback you gave us this series. Uh, I have to admit this series is going to be very intellectual, kind of like the last one. It's going to lean more towards intellectual. Uh, we did a series in April throughout the summer that was a lot more spiritually experiential. And I think we need both. I think we need to be deeply spiritual in our experience of God. And we also need these deeply practical discussions about reasons for our faith as well. So uh, welcome to a deeply practical, reasonable, reasonable one. The central theme comes down to this question of this series. Can we trust the Bible as being divinely inspired and reliable for our life and faith? Well-known atheist and comedian Bill Maher, in one of his famous clashes with a Christian on his show, said this. He said, faith is the purposeful suspension of critical thinking. Richard Dawkins, in The God Delusion, said, to be fair, much of the Bible is not systematically evil, but just plain weird, as you would go, as you would expect of a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents, composed, revised, translated, distorted, and improved by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors, and copyists, unknown to us, mostly unknown to each other, spanning nine centuries. If the Bible is full of historical, factual, scientific errors blatantly contradicting itself, as Dawkins and others say, then it certainly is really hard to trust it as reliable for our faith. How can we trust this ancient book as a guide to our lives. In particular, the focus we're going to deal with over the next few weeks is going to be, uh, is going to be the focus of the apparent conflict between the Bible and science. We struggle with this issue regularly in classes and, and around in a culture. We, this week we're going to talk about in general how the Bible historically and scientifically, uh, how that relates and, and, and how we can indeed trust the Bible as reliable. Next week we're going to talk about the issue of creation and evolution, which is a, a big issue that comes up a lot of times in discussions. And the final week we're going to talk about some of those difficult, more fantastic miracles in the Bible like the flood. And what do we do with stuff like that in the Bible? How can we read that and still trust this book as reliable. In a broad general sense, those who struggle with the reliability of the Bible question it from two perspectives, historical accuracy and the apparent conflicts between science and the Bible. Are the miracles real or are they fairy tales? Is the biblical worldview truthful and real to life, or is it just man's misguided attempt to explain things they don't understand that eventually science figures out and now we no longer need those explanations for life? 
this latter statement is actually a view often referred to as the God of the gaps theory. It's the idea that we make up these mystical, spiritual, divine explanations for things we can't explain. And eventually science does explain it and it removes those gaps. How do we trust the Bible? In the past, we've talked about it extensively in a couple other messages, so I'm going to just quickly summarize a couple pieces from those past messages, and then we're going to really emphasize a different focus today. If you go to college, and many professors who are skeptical of the Bible insist that the Bible, as Dawkins does, that it's completely unreliable. It's full of mistakes. It's full of contradictions. It's been passed on inaccurately with lots of changes. And so we don't even know if what we have today is really what was originally written. And therefore, since we don't even know that, we should, certainly shouldn't trust this book for our lives, right? Those same professors, though, interestingly enough, will cite the gold standard of historians for Roman history like Pliny the Younger or Herodotus, the gold standard historian for the Greek Empire, and they'll look at those and they'll just kind of assume this is accurate historically and reliable that we can trust it. But did you know that Pliny the Younger, who wrote from 61 to 133 A.D., his earliest known manuscript is 850 A.D. That's 700 years removed from when he actually wrote. And there's only seven copies left of that era of his work. Did you know that Herodotus' history, written from 480 B.C. to 425 B.C., is a contemporary of Socrates? The earliest known manuscript is 900 A.D., 1,300 years removed from the original writing of the manuscript, and there's only about eight from that time period of the the writing. And we trust those as history. And yet the New Testament prior to the year 1000 A.D. has over 5,600 Greek manuscripts And when you add the Syriac, Aramaic, Coptic, and Latin translations, there's over 24,000 manuscripts. Now, this is only 13,000 sheets of paper. 13,018, actually. I couldn't take any more from the office without shutting down businesses last week. So imagine this stack nearly twice that high. That's how many New Testament manuscripts we have of the Bible of the same or earlier age, right? Compared to those stacks there. And here's the deal. We have 17 manuscripts alone of the New Testament dated from the 2nd century. We have a fragment of the Gospel of John, a major portion of the Gospel of John, dated to the year 125 A.D., some dated earlier than that. We have a fragment of the Gospel of Mark discovered a while back in some archaeology digs that was finally studied and dated by one of the world's leading paleographers in 2012, whose conclusion was that is certainly from the first century, meaning we even have part of the Gospel of Mark from the time when the apostles were, some of the apostles were still likely alive. Maybe even the author was still alive at that time. Even these 18 manuscripts that we have, compared to the stacks here, are more than these two combined. And they're only decades old from the original manuscripts. 
when science actually looks at this whole big stack of manuscripts and applies the science of textual criticism to them, whether, you're a, whether it's a Christian scholar or a secular scholar doing that, they've come to the conclusion that 98 to somewhere between 98 and 99.5% of every word we have today in our New Testament is accurate to the original that was written. And the one, the, the half a percent or so that isn't accurate, they say are words that has, have absolutely no impact on the meaning of the text. Why, in the face of this kind of evidence, do we have scholars who trust this, but don't trust the accuracy of this? It doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, some believe the Bible is historical and reliable because there are many things in the Bible that are said that are yet to be corroborated in, in, in outside sources through archaeology and the study of history. Yet, yet especially in the last 150 years, the mountain of archaeological evidence unearthed continues to confirm over and over again that the Bible is historically accurate. One of the biggest, some of the biggest objections to the Bible are some of the stories in the Bible, particularly stories like the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament, because there hadn't been for most of the time any evidence of that kind of stuff in history. I mean, the Bible says there were these five major cities located in a fertile, lush, green area by what today is the Dead Sea. You see it in the story of Abraham and Lot in Genesis 13. When they had both grown their flocks to the point where they couldn't be together in the same place, they chose to separate ways. And Lot, it says, chose the lush green fertile valley and went to live in Sodom. We see it in Genesis 13. Later in Genesis 19, we see because of the rampant sin, but this is also in the context of one of the most beautiful stories of God's patience and graciousness. We see Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed in 1924 with brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, the text says. Here's the problem. The Bible paints this picture of a veritable Garden of Eden around the Dead Sea with five large cities that are essentially self-sufficient. Yet the land today, is, and as far back as modern history sees it, is this dry, rocky desert with very few trees, largely uninhabitable. Two opposing pictures, green and lush, rocky, dry, uninhabitable. In the 1920s, archaeologists discovered a major trade route going through the Dead Sea area, and they started to do look a little more and discovered the evidence of possible cities. Extensive uh, excavations started in the 1960s, and since then they have confirmed the evidence of five large cities exactly where the Bible says they were, along the Dead Sea, just as the Bible says. And they've unearthed graveyards where they estimate there are up to 1.5 million people buried in these graveyards. The buildings that they've unearthed contain writings and pottery, and they've actually contained elements of preserved food that was preserved in the desert climate that have allowed scientists to study it and, and verify that the produce grown in these cities supports the idea of a lush, green, fertile area of that, around that area. Furthermore, the biblical word for brimstone is the word widely used. Uh, it's, it's believed that it refers to a hydrocarbon bitumen, which is the essential ingredient in asphalt. And that 
ingredient can also be distilled, in, distilled into a cleaning agent, and it's naturally occurring in the ground in the Dead Sea area, and it's highly flammable. Josephus, one of the greatest first century Roman and Jewish historians, referred to the Dead Sea as the lake of asphaltites in his writing. Archaeologists believe that the area that they've been digging in where the, of Sodom and Gomorrah, as they've dug down to find the ruins, they've also discovered 4 to 20 inches of kind of a spongy ash covering the entire city. And the hypothesis of the geologists is that there's a major earthquake fault line that runs right along the edge of the Dead Sea, and they believe that there was a major earthquake that caused volcanic activity that also spewed that uh, asphalt that's in the, the bitumen that's in the earth high into the sky, lighting on fire, which substantiates the Genesis account of fire falling from the sky that destroyed them. If you study the archaeology of the Bible, even just remotely, the Bible is one of the most proven documents, ancient documents, to be historically reliable of all of them in the world. But that kind of evidence still doesn't answer all the questions that people have between science and the Bible. There are still many things left unexplained. Some believe scientific advances, especially in medicine and psychology, explain away certain biblical views, especially the example of demonization in the Bible. They would say that ancient people didn't understand things like epilepsy and seizures and bipolar and schizophrenia and different maladies like that, and they just blamed those things as being demonization, and that's not really what it was. Which brings us back to this God of the Gaps argument that science and fact are really the way to explain the gaps and not the superstitious mystical thinking of religion and faith. But before we go further with that, in order to understand the relationship of theology and science, the faith and science, we have to start by understanding science itself. The American context, the Western world context of science is nearly synonymous with an idea called rational realism. Realism meaning what you discover to be true. That's what the word realism is intended to communicate. J.P. Moreland, a scholar, defines it this way. He says, according to this view, good scientific theories are rational. Indeed, science is the model of rationality, and good scientific theories are true, or at least approximately true, descriptions of the world. So that's the definition. So the example is, if science says electrons exist, then it's reasonable and rational for us to believe that electrons do indeed exist. And and this is the way this impacts this debate between science and theology. Moreland goes on to say, by implying that if science says something is true and Christianity seems to conflict with science, then Christianity needs to be adjusted because science always defeats religion in these battles, or perhaps religion was never intended to be a factual, rational way of understanding the world, but rather a private guide for one's practical life. You've probably heard that argument in some of your own conversations in school and elsewhere. See, most debates about science and theology, especially in creation and evolution, which we're going to deal with next week, assume rational realism. It says that what is true must be rational and can be empirically explained. The problem with rational realism is the assumptions from which it operates cannot be proven by scientific methods to be true. Science starts in all cases 
with a, with a philosophical or theological belief about reality, about how one discovers truth and whether one can discover truth. And there's a lot of critique of rational realism in today's world, even in the Western world. One of the loudest is actually called this. It's rational non-realism. So don't get caught up in the terms. Here's what that means. Something can be true without being rational. In fact, something can be true even if no one has ever thought about it, is the critique. So here's an example of that. The example is this. In the Middle Ages, the explanation of chemical reactions, while it did not refer to atoms because they did not know about atoms, can be as true as our explanations today, even though the details are not completely correct at all, because it was a rational observation of how things actually worked in that day. People can be correct they can be rational, they can be reliable in what they're saying, even if their paradigm of looking at things is not fully true or even eventually true at all. Because rational belief is not necessarily true, is it? I mean, think about it from a jury. A jury finding someone guilty based on rational evidence does not always mean that that person is in fact guilty. We understand that. That's a reality we understand. But how does this relate to the Bible and the science in a way that helps us navigate this attention better that we experience? It's simply this way. It adds perspective to how we understand reliability of the ancient texts. So let's just take an example. Let's say some people were healed of demonization in the Bible who actually had epilepsy and, not, and weren't really demonized. Even if that is true it doesn't necessarily make the Bible unreliable because the people were describing in an honest, rational way what they saw and how they understood it back then. And what happened in the Bible does not diminish the miracle. If someone had epilepsy, people pray for a demon and they were still healed, there's still a healing miracle, a divine intervention that still happened in that moment. We can still trust the Bible's main point of wanting us to believe and wanting us to pursue God for miraculous intervention. We can still trust the Bible as reliable even for us today. Because the stories were reflecting rational honesty of the day and pointing still to a genuine God encounter that they were experiencing and observing. Even if today we end up having a slightly different label or even a radically different label for what that problem really was. Now, for some of you, I can hear alarm bells going off in your head. Just go ahead and turn the alarm bells off because you're probably hearing me say something I'm not saying. I am not saying Demons don't exist. And I'm not saying that we should explain away everything using this rationale that I just used in this example. Because frankly, it's not, it is not rational to believe in a God, a good spiritual being, but not also believe in a evil spiritual being as well. If you're going to concede the one as being rational, you have to concede the other as being rational as well. I'm just giving a possible way that we can apply to many different situations in the Bible that allows us to still see the Bible as reliable, even if their perspective scientifically wasn't 100% there yet. 
Another way non-rational realism in science is legitimately questioned is through something called non-rational realism. Again, don't get caught up in the term. Here's what it means. There's no such thing as neutral facts or data. Observation is theory-laden. Our perception of the world is not unbiased. The world we see is itself determined by our theories about the world. In other words, what it's saying is too often you see what you expect to see. And we get that, that there's an element of truth in that too, right? There's another problem as well. Many, not all people who operate from rational realism, the dominant theory undergirding how we even think about science today, believe the God of the gaps theory. That aside from theology, the God of the gaps theory, even if you take theology out of the equation, the God of the gaps theory has got problems with it. Rational realism's assertion over time is simply this, that science refines and progressively adds to an expanding clarity and accuracy of the reality of life. Since those findings seem at times contradictory to theology and philosophy, then science in the argument is more reliable or is the only reliable way to find truth about what is real. The problem is that the history of science does not bear that assumption out. The history of science is not one of refining and extending scientific theories, but all too often it is complete paradigm changes. It is one new theory refuting the old and throwing it away and replacing it and successive times in history of that happening. Just think about that. The world is flat. The world is round. The earth is at the center of the universe. The sun is at the center of the universe. Aristotelian physics was done away with largely by Newtonian physics, and that has been significantly done away with by relativistic physics and quantum physics today. Even when you read about atomic theory from the last few centuries, an article I read this last week basically said that that what has largely been accepted as true by a scientific community has been completely rejected and replaced six times since the beginning of atomic theory. Now... We tend to trust science in our culture. We trust what we can observe with our senses, verify through our hypotheses, our theories, our formulas, our mathematics. We tend to largely, blindly accept rational realism in our understanding of science. But science, historically, and even in the valid critiques that I brought up about rational realism today, is not independent of philosophy and theological bias and cannot be absolutely trusted as we tend to think it can be. In fact, one could reasonably argue that the core of science has fluctuated and radically changed, being proven to be wrong and being replaced far more often than the core of theology has been proven to be wrong in the world today. Science often asserts Only what we can know by science and quantify through empirical testing is rational and true. But that very foundational statement of science is self-refuting because you cannot observe and empirically test that statement and prove it to be true. Moreland kind of concludes this way. He says, another way of putting this is to say that the aims, the methodologies, the presuppositions of science cannot be validated by science. One cannot turn to science to justify science any more than one can pull himself up by his own bootstraps. The validation of science is a philosophical and I would argue also a theological one, not just a scientific one. 
Science itself is founded on philosophy and theological presuppositions. So, why do I say this? Honestly, just to help us fully recognize the idea that science is not necessarily empirical fact that we can always believe, but it is based upon theological and philosophical presuppositions that science itself cannot prove any better than theology can empirically approve some of its own beliefs and statements either. So how do we deal with science in the Bible? First, we can trust the Bible's statements as being true rational understandings of how the ancients observed and understood things in their day. We already dealt with that through an illustration earlier, so let's jump on to number two. Second, we can trust the Bible because we see the divine imprint on it through things that were written that go beyond the understanding of the people of that context. For example, you can find many examples of this. Later scientists who were Christian used biblical statements to challenge their assumptions and discover new scientific theories that some of them we still believe in and are intact today. Johannes Kepler is an example of that. His faith and his belief that God is a God of order, as the Bible declares them, challenged his current day's view of uh, the cosmos under their chaos theory, and it allowed him to solve the riddle of planetary motion because he started to think about it differently because of what the Bible taught him. Galileo used scripture to scripture from Job to defend the Copernican view of the universe, and Job does accurately describe it in a statement. You can read it, and it just really says what is understood to be absolutely true today. We also see the divine imprint in prophetic things about history, Things being fulfilled hundreds of years later that were spoken of by God, where statisticians would say that's impossible for that to have happened without divine involvement. Third, many things in the Bible have been or will be proven to be true over time by scientific research. We see that all the time. One of the latest and most massive studies on marriage done by the University of Virginia and University of Michigan, I've referenced it before, about God's design for sex, simply confirm what God says about sex being reserved for marriage. Because those studies show that sex before marriage or living together before you're married, actually people who do that end up having a higher rate of divorce and a lower level of satisfaction in their marriage. The science proves God's good intent and his invitations to us in our relationships, even in that way. God's ways are good, and he wants us to experience that good, and he invites us to that. The question is, what other biblical statements not yet fully understood or even rejected today will also one day be proven true by science? Fourth, We need to recognize what theology brings to us in regard to knowing truth and real life and what science cannot bring. This last week on the way to a voice lesson with Jared, he was doing his English homework and he read uh, an article, This is the Water by David Foster Wallace, who is a non-Christian prestigious award-winning writer and professor. He took his own life in 2008. And Wallace observes something that is not completely biblical, but largely biblical. And I think you'll recognize that. He says in his writing, he says, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. 
And an outstanding reason, he goes on to say, for choosing some sort of a God or a spiritual type of thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, and he goes on to list a whole smattering of things, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will, you will always feel ugly. And when, when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before you are finally planted in the ground. On one level, we already know this, don't we? He says, but look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're bad or sinful, it's that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. Look, what Wallace says applies to our discussion today. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom in Proverbs 1.7. And that fear connotes this idea of relationship. It's not the running scared away from somebody in fear. It's the reverencing awe of a relationship that is amazing with someone. And the Message Bible paraphrase says it this way. It says, start with God. The first step in learning is bowing down to God. Only fools thumb their noses at such wisdom and learning. And the question is, do we allow the Creator God to shape our basic assumptions even about science. If not, we end up worshiping. And that's really what it is. We end up worshiping assumptions like rational realism that do not fit reality and need to be challenged. But we don't challenge them because we unconsciously accept them. Further, Hawking, Hawking's book, Grand Design, says this. It says, philosophy is dead. Science will prove everything. But if you say to someone, I love you, what scientific theory defines that love? Love is a philosophical or theological statement, not a scientific one. We can't make the cardinal blunder of believing that science is the answer for everything because science may get us to many places an understanding of what we see and experience around us, but the ultimate questions of life, meaning of life, can only come from theology and philosophy. Uh, Robert Jastrow, the founder of the Goddard Institute for Science, wrote a book called God and the Astronomers. And he says, he tells a story, he says it this way, he says, For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He's scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak, and as he pulls himself over that final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there waiting for him for centuries. Fifth, faith in the Bible or in God is not blind faith as science often accuses, as the God of the gaps theory makes the assertion. The Greek word for faith in the New Testament is the word pistis, and it means to be persuaded, convinced, based on evidence. The Christian faith, a Christian who is, has faith, does not have blind faith. If they have blind faith, that's not Christian faith. It is evidence-based faith. We are to learn from the wonders of the creation that God created. Because the discoveries of science itself lead us into a greater reverence and awe of the God who created it all and the God we serve.
I'm going to invite Jeremy to join me as we take a few questions. Okay, so here's a question as Jeremy comes. Why is Jeremy so good looking? Genetics. <laughs> and mine just glitched and all the questions went away on mine. Oh, let me see. You got a good question? Let me pull them up. There was a good question that came up. <clears throat> Excuse me. This was toward the end of the last service. We didn't get to address it, but I thought it was a good good conversation. Considering we're talking about the scripture and its validity and, and understanding it. Um, was the Bible put together at a conference in the 400s by a group of men, some not Christians? Uh, this question is really referring to the canon of scripture that was created at the, um, the Council of... Uh, Constantinople in, I think it was 381, is that right? I believe so. Somewhere around there. And uh, in the council, a lot of um, Christian men came together to uh, figure out what texts were going to go into the Bible and which weren't. And they had some criteria by which they ran the text through to say this is valid, uh, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. I had a, a I want to use that if I can. Do you need it? Okay. Go ahead. Um, I had notes on it, so Ross is trying to steal them. Uh, some of the, the 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 criteria that they had for for scripture to come in were prophet, prophetic authorship, which uh, essentially means that when they were looking at the different uh, texts that would be introduced into the scripture, uh, there were some criteria of who authored it. They had to know who the author was and how um, closely related to Jesus they were, particularly for the New Testament. Um, and so for it to be considered canonical, it had to be written by a prophet for the Old Testament, apostle for the New Testament, or someone who had a very special uh, eyewitness testimony of Christ. So Paul would be a good example of that, who um, encountered Christ um, uh, on in his conversion experience. There had to be also a witness of the Spirit. Uh, there's an appeal within the text to um, a witness of the Holy Spirit that uh, helped people to understand then which books would go in uh, to the canon. And uh, this is to say that the Spirit did not reveal a list of inspired books, but left a recognition of historical process in which he was active and that the God's people learned to distinguish um, uh, what was good and what was bad in terms of what goes into that text. So um, does the teaching that comes from this text prove itself out according to what they understood about God? Uh, and the final uh, criteria was acceptance, the overall acceptance from the people of God as uh, the texts were rolled out. So um, some of the criteria, the, the, the question really is asking, like, what was there a good process by which the, the texts were brought into? So we have the canon of the Old and New Testament scriptures, you know, who, who decided this? And they were, it was a very thoughtful and prayerful and long process, quite frankly, by which we do get our Old and New Testament. I don't know if that was helpful. Yeah. There was another question. Uh, it sounds like uh, when so, even this morning, um, so I apologize if this is the way it came across. This, the question was, it feels like we make us versus science. Um, I don't think that's where I want to land. I think science is a beautiful thing God has given us. He says, explore his creation, understand his creation. He's given us minds. He's given us the ability to do that. 
the, the, the main question I want to bring up is how do we deal with when there's seeming contradiction? And I think some of the ways we talked about this, that, that this morning, if a lot of the contradictions come out of just wholly taking rational realism as, as the, as the worldview and presupposition of science when I think sometimes it is uh, rational non-realism. I think we can trust that the Bible said it was right because they were observing chemical reactions and it worked. They were able to produce things by them, but maybe their explanation fully wasn't right, that we can still trust it as reliable. I think there's many ways to deal with different things where there's contradictions that allow us to be scientific and still trust the Bible as reliable. And that's where I think uh, I would hope that we would land today. Was there another question, Jeremy? Yeah, there was another question about uh, the ending of Mark and some of the manuscripts that you probably have in your Bible. Mark chapter 16, verses 19 through, or I'm sorry, 9 through 20 um, either in your manuscript uh, it does not exist or there is a, a note that says, as in mine, I have the ESV here, it says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include Mark 16, 9 through 20. Uh, and then it does have the actual um, verse there. And the question was, why is this? What, 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 what do we need to know about this? And essentially um, the reason that there is some discrepancy is that scholars uh, in the earliest manuscripts that we have, uh, this particular portion of the text, 9 through 20, was left out. It was lost. Um, it, you know, whether it was the last sheet of the text and it was, you know, through the, through over time, it, it got lost, but then it, it came up later in a, in a later manuscript. And so they, they included it because, uh, they were kind of looking through, you know, does it, um, finish the narrative of the gospel account? This really is in reference to after Jesus's, um, uh, resurrection. He appears to Mary Magdalene, appears to some other disciples, and then he gives the Great Commission, which we find in other gospel uh, 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 in, in accounts. And so uh, that's why a lot of the, the manuscripts do include it, um, however, with the side note. And the side note really is just to say there is some discrepancy within the oldest mon- manuscripts of whether it really is a part of the text. Um, but I don't think... Um, by reading it in Mark that we lose anything or we're taught something that's inappropriate um, for uh, understanding the story of Christ's resurrection and his, the, the first apostles uh, that were sent out by him. So I don't know if that answered the question. There was someone in here. So if it, if it didn't, you can come talk to me later. And I'll... Well, hopefully you're not having problems with the Internet. I had to go to LTE to get my, uh, my uh, thing to show up. So if there's other questions, I apologize for missing them, but I don't have any others. So... We're just going to close. Come on, worship team. John, uh, one of Jesus' closest disciples, uh, starts everything he says in celebrating the one, by celebrating the one who was at the beginning and created all that exists. He says in John 1, he says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life And that life was the light of all mankind. Sounds like another way of saying knowledge and wisdom begins in the fear of the Lord. The one who is the beginner and the creator of everything, who knows it all, who holds it together. Unless our presuppositions eventually line up with him, we discover a skewed truth. We discover truth, though, even in science, when we allow our presuppositions to be the Creator's presuppositions. And when we do, whether in science or theology, we dis- what we discover leads us to this reverence and awe of the one we worship. 
So as we celebrate communion today, as we close, allow yourself, even in this moment of celebrating communion, to reverence God, to receive the wonder of what we're going about to experience. Paul instructing the Corinthians on how to celebrate God's love and presence among them through communion as part of worship. Uh, quotes Jesus in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, where Jesus says, he says, this is my body, referring to the bread, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, Jesus took the cup of wine after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and you, sealed by the shedding of blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. And Jesus puts right before our eyes this overwhelming love of God that we get to experience. That God himself who created us when we rebelled against him would come to live among us because he loves us and because he wants to save us, because he wants to heal us, because he wants to give us wisdom and knowledge. And that he would love us perfectly and forgive us perfectly by even being willing to die for you and me to shed his blood. That's what we celebrate in communion. So if those who are serving can come, we're going to worship one more song and receive communion, and then we'll dismiss. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.